Aerospace fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster Podcast. My name is Jamie, and I'm here with Robin to introduce you to a little bit of a new format. As you may have noticed, it's been a minute since we put out an episode, and we've been working in the background to revamp how we put them together. We're going to aim for a weekly episode that takes on a little bit more of a variety show format. You'll be hearing about space news, new features on Supercluster, new features of our app, everything that's going on with our company. But you'll also hear segments about all kinds of different topics. We'll have short stories and long stories. You'll hear sounds from space. We'll have interviews and other pieces that are interesting to space fans. We hope that you'll help us out as we develop this new format, and we welcome all of your suggestions and comments. Thanks so much, Jamie. That really sums it up. And our team has been working really hard behind the scenes on new products, new merchandise. Our editorial squad, which is among the best in the world, have been churning out really great reporting on all different fronts, SpaceX, SETI, and just all aspects of space exploration. Jamie, I'm looking forward to doing this show with you every week and with Chris Gebhardt, who is uh, waiting on the line. Chris has been on the show with us for Last Week in Space when we experimented with that format for a long time. And just speaking of these experimenting with formats, we've done a lot of different podcasts. Jamie has done these really well-produced story podcasts about history. And Chris and I have sort of done a few of the news podcasts and interviews. And this podcast is really a combination of all those times we experimented. We saw what worked. We saw what didn't work. We listened to our listeners and are you know accommodating what they want to hear every week. And yeah. um, now, Jamie, since I feel like we started rebuilding this podcast, there's been a dozen new podcasts, space podcasts launched. So we're in a very competitive world and we're happy to be part of such a vibrant community. Yeah, and I think we can all learn from each other. One other thing I wanted to mention that I that's going to be really fun about this more modular format is that a lot of times we come across a shorter story or a little snippet of audio or something that doesn't really justify its own podcast, but now we have a place to put that. We just put it in a short segment in one of our upcoming variety episodes, and you can hear some of that stuff. So I'm excited about some of those things that used to slip through the cracks. Right. And we'll be including a lot more folks who are creators at Supercluster. We'll be calling in Eric Kuna. We'll be calling in John Krause from Cape Canaveral. We'll be calling in our reporters and the folks that we're interviewing, you know, to get comment and to unpack some of the stories that we're doing with them and some of the coverage that we're doing. Yeah. And I think it'll be fun to include more people on the show. And if you're a space professional listening and you want to be on the show because you've been listening so hard, you know, always feel free to reach out to us. We're looking always looking for stories and we're always looking for a new point of view. So that is something that we want to do here. Absolutely. All right, Jamie, thank you. And we are heading into our new segment and we are going to call in Chris Gebhardt, who is always monitoring the daily launch happenings down at Cape Canaveral and around the world. He is the assistant managing editor, NASA Spaceflight and a contributor to Supercluster. Hey, Chris, are you there? I am. How's it going, Robin? Pretty okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's going very, very okay. Thank yes, you, Chris. And uh, loaded, it's great. <laughs> right. And it's great to have you back on, Chris. I know we've all been very busy working on an array of different things in the space world. I mean, I know you're down in Florida on the coast and you are experiencing rain and weather. So if you hear rain in Chris's background, he is just in Florida. Yeah, you're just, hearing, uh, you're just yeah. hearing the launch, the launch delays yeah. in the background. Yeah, That's the what launch you're delays are... <laughs> 
you are literally listening to a launch being delayed right now in the in Chris's background with that rain. So I will let Chris get into this because honestly, while we're taping this podcast, the minute before we hopped on, we are all tracking these minute to minute weather updates and these launch shuffles that keep happening last week and this week. So Chris, hit us. Yeah, so all the launches are are, are kind of in flux right now because of right. weather, and there's a very important National Reconnaissance Office mission that is sort of keeping priority on the range as it moves to different days. And the range is a, is basically the big fancy word for saying the spaceport in Florida that's managed by the 45th Space Wing of the Space Force slash Air Force that's still making that transition. Right. But regardless of all of when these missions launch, the payloads that are going up are going to be extremely beneficial to a variety of areas. So we thought it was worthy to talk about those particular payloads. And in, in no particular order, first up is going to be that really important National Reconnaissance Office payload. It is a officially known as NROL-44. And officially, the National Reconnaissance Office says, don't ask what's in there. They always we say have that. A, they always say that. We have, <laughs> yeah, a pretty good yeah, idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we have a pretty good idea of what's in it. it it's, it's most likely an Orion Signals Intelligence satellite that is going to geostationary orbit, which would explain the size of the payload fairing of the Delta IV Heavy that's launching it and the fact that it needs the Delta IV Heavy to actually get off the ground and get up there. That's going to be a huge boon for national security for the United States and military communications. And also, to be frank, spying on other nations and interception of communications and keeping troops and American assets safe and secure around the world. Yeah. And that is why Space Force exists now. Yes. And so why there- these, <laughs> that's exactly why they assemble the Space Force, because the U.S. military, the Pentagon, they believe that with the access to space increasing for everyone, they see that as a, a security threat from nations like China and Russia, which is typical because space is just another platform to engage your opponents and your enemies or your allies, which yeah. we've seen with the space station. But um, <laughs> so yes, one day, I mean, I have to say this, but one day we will be talking about doing business with the Russians and space. And then one mm-hmm. day we'll be talking about the need for an offensive or defensive satellite that we need to launch and we need a whole space force to do so. Yeah. I was just going to ask, so I'm clear, this is a satellite that then listens to radio signals? Is that its primary function? So that's the classified function of it. We don't really know exactly what it does, except that it just listens to encrypted transmissions and signals that are emanating from different parts, from, from the parts of the world that it can see from its right. from its vantage right. point up there. And while the NRO does kind of let things slip into the public domain, like the yeah. fact that we know it's pretty much an Orion signals intelligence satellite, mm-hmm. they're fine with us kind of knowing the name they're not fine with us knowing what it does. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the NRO does have a PR media department. <laughs> Myself and I'm Joey. I'm glad you're going to tell this <laughs> okay, story. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was there, so, yes. What is it, like a locked I, door in an empty no, alleyway? No, 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 no. It's very the opposite. So Chris and I, it was a rainy, stormy. Chris, what mission? What was OTB5? No, uh, it was NROL. No, it was the first NROL mission for first SpaceX. SpaceX. Yeah. yeah. SpaceX launched their first NROL mission a couple years ago, and it was a very early morning. It was just Chris, myself, and Joey Roulette, who you folks know as a supercluster contributor and Reuters space reporter. Joey was with us, Chris, myself, 
and a table of three very lovely ladies who are very friendly. And we were all like, who, who are they? I think actually it was a pair of folks. And Kristen and I looked over each other. Joey and I looked over at each other. We were all sitting at different tables, drinking SpaceX's coffee and eating their donuts. Hmm. And I, Chris and I, we were all messaging each other. We're like, is that the public relations people for yeah. Like they have a public relations department? Why? I think that's the best part of the, of the story is that we're all sitting at a table totally not conspicuously texting yeah. each other because we don't want to go, are you the NRO? Yeah, what? nobody wanted to ask. So yeah, it, it was really it was really a fun moment. But then eventually later we talked to them. And they gave us cards and stuff. And they were like, oh, if you need comment for this mission, please feel free to reach out. And we did reach out and they did talk to us separately. Yeah. Yeah. So, and to to recap that morning, it was a beautiful launch and landing. It was a landing on ground at LZ-1. And I remember there was a family and friend of SpaceX or somebody and there was a kid there. And the kid yes. clapped when the Falcon 9 landed. That was a really cool moment. Yeah, because there are always those moments that like snap you back from the reality of your job. Because when this yeah. is your job, and Robin, you know this just as I do, right? You can get caught up in little things that are upsetting you throughout the day and things like that and, and yeah. forget to appreciate what you're seeing. And then watching a kid react just like yeah. brings it reminds you right me back why. down yeah. to why you do this. I want to say that was maybe like landing number four or five or something. It was one of those. It was an early landing, I would say. Chris probably knows which one. Chris, just go ahead and say it. It was one of the earlier ones. <laughs> yeah. I'm struggling to remember if this was, I believe okay, this I don't was feel bad for not knowing anymore. <laughs> yeah. I think this was 2017. Yeah. Um, so it had to happened. been the yeah. first batch of landings, like the mm-hmm. first couple. They were always like really nerve wracking and amazing. And they still are, but like that being number four or fifth landing. And we were always like on the edge of our seats for those. Mm-hmm. And it was Especially cool. for those ones that flew themselves back, right? Because right, you're just right. like, oh, please, I'm close to you. Please don't yeah, do anything yeah, yeah. bad. Do not, <laughs> do not miss that target. Yeah. It was a, nice to recall that. And, you know, we're, we're hoping that ULA and the Delta IV Heavy, just some context on the Delta IV Heavy, before Falcon Heavy made its debut a couple of years ago, the Delta IV Heavy was the most powerful operational rocket in the world mm-hmm. and the Falcon heavy I'm stealing words from Elon is exponentially. What was the number Chris? Yeah. So the Delta or heavy puts out approximately two, 2.4, 2.5, 2.5 million pounds of thrust and the Falcon yeah. heavy puts out roughly 5 million pounds. Yeah. Of thrust so that's, yeah, that's, that's a clear double there. Wow. And I think yeah. that's always the language we use, but the Delta four heavy is an incredible launch vehicle. Mm-hmm. It launched the Parker solar probe. It launched a bunch of other amazing missions and not getting too technical, but part mm-hmm. of its capability actually stems from its upper stage, which has, right. which is a very low thrust to weight ratio. So mm-hmm. the engine is basically putting out just barely enough thrust to be a little bit more than the thing weighs for the majority of that stage's trip to orbit, but it actually mm-hmm. starts out with a less than one ratio. So it's wow. actually producing less thrust than the stage actually weighs when it ignites. It's a, it has a very high specific impulse and specific impulse is the measure of the efficiency of the engine. So the upper stages of the Delta IV and the Atlas V, which are getting combined into the Vulcan 
from United Launch Alliance, which will be coming later next year, they can do very, very precise orbit insertions, which are crucial for those interplanetary missions like the Parker Solar Probe you just mentioned, Robin. Before we move on to an, another news topic, I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about Falcon Heavy really quick. But Chris, there has been updates. They have moved the Falcon Heavy launch to first quarter next year. Yes. The Air Force's Falcon Heavy. Yes. So we mm-hmm. so we got a date of February 28th. And then a couple of weeks later, we got an indication that maybe it's a bit more nebulous from the Air Force's side. But yes, because this will be called USSF-44, which is the code name that they give for United States Space Force 44 uh-huh. mission. But we don't really know exactly when, just first quarter of next year. That makes sense. You both have seen shuttle launches. I I have Mm -hmm. been far away from them. So, Jamie, you did a shuttle launch, one of the last few. Yeah, and it was 132. Right. And you also covered and shot Falcon Heavy STP-2 when we were all down there covering that mission. We shot Bill Nye, we shot Celestis, and we also shot the launch. Now, Jamie, describe to me the difference for you, or even if there was a difference, in the intensity of like Falcon Heavy launch and the shuttle launch? Well, I mean, you know, one of the, it's always difficult to compare things like that just because watching any launch like that is so so affecting. And I, you know, not only was I at different points in my life, but in, in the later launch, I was there with a specific purpose. We had to generate media. And in the previous one, it was my first launch I had ever seen. And I was there purely as a spectator. I had a camera in my hand, as is Mm -hmm. my want to do in most situations, but I was just there as a a personal mission. Also, the shuttle launch was day and STP-2 is night, which are, again, different Mm -hmm. feelings. But I will say Mm -hmm. that both of them gave me that incredible sense of the amount of mass that is moving is near impossible to understand. Like I'm seeing a thing happen that no matter how much physics or how much science or how much I really understand what I'm seeing, just the same as a shuttle in 2011, (laughs) seven years later, the heavy in 2018 gave me that similar feeling. And obviously I've learned more and had more experiences in between, but that really didn't go away. The shuttle, I will say though, lives in my heart in a different way because I grew up with it. I was born basically around the time of the first shuttle launches and all throughout my childhood, that's what a a real spaceship was. I loved Mm -hmm. all kinds of fake spaceships. But to me, that was the one where I could turn on the news and be like, oh yeah, that's a real spaceship. So seeing that had a sort of fantasy fulfillment element that STP-2, while still incredible, did not quite hit me that same way. Chris, were you at the final shuttle launch? I was indeed, yes. What was that like? I mean, just like, I mean, I'm not, we won't get into it because we could do a three hour podcast on this, but (laughs) just what was your final emotion with the shuttle as it lifted off? Like, what was your goodbye thing? So there was a lot of anxiety because there was a last minute hold at T minus 31 seconds oh, to verify really? the return. Oh, yes, no. the, the, cap that, the arm and the cap that sat over the external tank did not register on its sensors that it had retracted against the side of the tower. Oh, no. So, wow. So and you can see that it has. <laughs> yes. So basically, they had to turn all the cameras on the pad to look at the latches wow. to visually verify that they were latched. And then even if they weren't, that like hydraulic pressure in the system would keep the arm retracted from the vibration once you lit the solid rocket. So there was that. And I remember when they said over the net, uh, over the communications net, what it was screaming out, 
an expletive, basically the <laughs> effing beanie cap um, <laughs> is what did it. So there was that. And then there was the emotion and like the not breathing when they picked up the count and the engines were lighting. But the thing I do remember is Atlantis broke through a cloud deck and disappeared from view about 49 seconds, 50 seconds after liftoff, right as it accelerated through max Q and the sound barrier where the vapors like popped on the outside of the rocket. And then it just disappeared into the clouds. And I just remember like sitting back against the van, the NASA press van that had taken us to the viewing location and just taking a moment to like close my eyes and reflect on what had just ended, but more so what we had voluntarily given up with nothing to replace it. Because a very important thing is when Atlantis launched on that final mission, there Mm. was no SLS. There was no Crew Dragon. There was no Boeing Starliner. Those commercial crew contracts had not been signed Uh and SLS had not been approved. There was literally nothing to replace it when it ended. And here we are today. That was hard. Yes. In a very different emotional space situation. Right. Right. So, and that is a perfect way for us to segue into the rest of the news we have for this segment. And let's talk about the replacements. Let's talk about where we are. SpaceX has already flown DM2. Bob and Doug have made it to the space station. They've made it back home. They made it back home to a fleet of crazy boaters in the Gulf, but (laughs) they made it back home safely. (laughs) That's all good. SpaceX is now preparing for Crew-1, which is coming up in less than 30 days. And we're getting really excited for that. And I'm going to let Chris give us a rundown of this mission and where we are right now. Yeah, so we are, at the time of reporting, 24 days away from the liftoff of the Crew-1 mission. It is currently scheduled to launch on Friday, October 23rd at 5.47 a.m. local time from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. This is going to be the first complete, like they go up and come back in the same vehicle, crew rotation flight from the United States since prior to the Columbia accident. Wow. Because even though the shuttles did take up crew members mm-hmm. they came back on the Columbia. right they came back right and yeah. and i mean even the shuttle doing crew rotation missions was was is a bit dubious in the same vehicle because mm-hmm. they would go up on one vehicle and they might come back on a different shuttle but the point being is that before the columbia accident all three crew members of the expedition went up together and then came back but then mm-hmm. after the columbia accident the shuttle was ferrying up only one at a time of the three person and then six person crew of the station so it really stopped doing those crew rotation flights after columbia so okay not to get morbid here chris yeah, yeah was that- but, but the change in the rotation is that to ensure that there is a complete crew in case there is an accident yeah, is that mitigation of risks? Uh, lose three compatriots all at once who train yeah, together. I, I, I don't know what the main reasoning for the changes. I'm trying to figure that. Yeah, out. so it was mainly uh, if NASA put one of their crew members or one of the Canadian, European, mm-hmm. Japanese astronauts, which are all part of the. It's very weird. Canada, Japan, and Europe technically count as U.S. segment crew members when they yeah. are up there. Okay. So putting one of them on a shuttle that NASA owned instead of paying Russia $80 million for a seat on the Soyuz, you can see how they would want to sort of continue part of their rotation efforts in a way that saved them a little money. So it didn't actually have anything to do with in case a shuttle was lost, because we always, even when the shuttles were doing the crew rotations and the Soyuz vehicles from Russia weren't, there was always a crew Soyuz at the station for an emergency escape pod, basically, so that they could come home in an emergency. 
Right, right. That makes that makes sense. Now, the other provider under the established commercial crew program that was supposed to replace the shuttle is Boeing Starliner. And uh, as our listeners and our readers know, they've had some trouble in getting that first uncrewed test mission to the space station. Chris and I were there at Kennedy Space Center. We were in the mix of that chaos. I think Chris and I were among the first people sitting down there on the reporter side to realize something was wrong. It's been a dramatic, long, confusing months that followed that event. We heard a lot of different things, but ultimately there was an investigation and they found a a lot of things that needed to be corrected and improved. Chris, what is that new timeline for redoing the uncrewed flight test to the space station? Yeah, so... Basically, the orbital flight test to the uncrewed flight test is Mm -hmm. late December, early January. At this point, I think officially from NASA, it's still December, but Mm -hmm. we kind of already know it's it's January. It's going to be in January, right. Yeah. And then if that mission goes well and they can demonstrate everything that the first one was supposed to demonstrate, Mm -hmm. as well as all the improvements that have been made to the software, since then, then they're thinking that their first crew test flight could take place sometime in the summer of 2021 at the earliest. So what that means in the interim is not only is SpaceX doing the crew rotation flight in set, launching next month in October, mm-hmm. they're also doing the one in spring of 2021 and the one in fall of 2021. So operational flights of Starliner are not really anticipated to begin at this point until 2022. All competition aside, the United States really needs two providers for this program to work. So we're wishing the best for Boeing and their development on Starliner. Indeed, because one of the biggest, I mean, truly one of the absolutely biggest things of this program is having two completely separate vehicles in case one has a problem that the other one can keep flying. It was never intended to be one had a problem on its test flight. So we have to rely on the other one right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's what it became. But, you know, (laughs) thankfully, that foresight was there from NASA at the beginning. And we did have two. And we did have one that could pick it up very, very quickly and move forward with it. Jamie, what do you think the perspective from the American public is on on this kind of situation? Well, you know, just very generally, SpaceX is the new hotness and Boeing is an old name. So I think that there's a feeling of institutional weight, which can sometimes be mean moving slow Mm -hmm. that people would associate with Boeing. Also not to go on a tangent, but Boeing has had some reputational problems with their traditional aircraft lately. I can't imagine help their perception. I mean, you know, let's I, say human lives were lost that, oh, on, absolutely. in another part of their business. Yeah. yeah. I, I would never, crashes. yeah, I, Chris and I know, I mean, from our work and working inside the space program, we know, and, and I want to put it out there, the space, Boeing space and Boeing airplanes, whatever that's called, very separate teams, very separate oh, people. Absolutely. Oh, and yes, uh, the, yes. the teams who work on Boeing Starliner, they, they are great people and they're, they're among the best engineers in the country. I think that they are working in a company, like you said, Jamie, that might do things in an old school way that isn't quite fitting with this new innovative world we're living in. I don't know. 
Yeah, and from mm-hmm. a public yeah. relations standpoint, it's the same brand, even if it's a completely different. No matter team. what, it's yeah. the same brand. No matter yeah. what, unfortunately. Yeah. So, you mm-hmm. know, there's that, and you know, say what you will about Elon Musk, but he has really become a media figure, and a lot of people like following that story. Mm-hmm. And the track record of success that they've been having has only widened that gulf. I did have a question for you, Chris. If I recall correctly, yeah. that was the test that would just was described at the time as kind of a partial success. How far would you say they really are? from where they need to be to be fulfilling that role as the second provider? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. The honest answer is quite a ways. And that was really borne out, I think, by and, and credit to Boeing on this, by, by basically they were the ones that made the decision. We're not going to mince words about this. We're going to refly the uncrewed test flight because there was a lot of question about was it good enough to put crew and just do the crew flight test and test all these new software and improvements with three people on board? And Boeing was really the one that before NASA could come to that decision formally to just say, we're redoing it and we're paying for that redo. So what they were kind of admitting is that while they proved out everything with the Atlas V and all the modifications we needed to make to the rocket to actually launch Starliner, that worked perfectly. So they did prove that out. They proved that Starliner could survive atmospheric reentry successfully and bring a crew back successfully. But it was kind of the 60% of the rest of the flight that they didn't get to do that is the impetus for, no, you, you've got to redo it. So, uh, you know, you, you can really look at they got good data from the first uncrewed test flight, mm-hmm. but they're basically doing it over again and, and starting from that perspective. Yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary for for that to be the case. You know, I feel a personal connection to the uh, Starliner mission because Chris and I were there. But not only were we there for this mission that failed, but Chris and I visited with the astronauts and stuff. And we visited with the spacecraft a bunch of times in their facility. And I think Chris and I were like walking around Kennedy one day and Sunita Williams, one of the first people who will fly Starliner, we just like took selfies with her yes. and hung out and it was just, yes. and she did the same thing when we visited Starliner a separate time, she came and hung out with us. And I mean, she introduced us to the other astronauts who were flying the mission, Chris Ferguson. And, you know, we just got to hang out with them and it was so personal and we got to know them and, and that when the mission didn't go well, it made me more upset in a way or more, gave me more anxiety. Cause I'm like, well, damn, you know, it, it really is Robin. And it's not just a factor of like, meeting the people who are going to fly on it. I mean, that that does really ground you into a yeah. very yeah. hard it reality. more serious. Yeah. It takes away, yeah. actually, because, <laughs> you know, when you go into these missions of a spacecraft, a new spacecraft flying for the first time, I mean, this is, we, we grew up watching Star Trek and Star Wars, all of us. That's the mm-hmm. thing. This is what we live for. So it's like, I'm here for this new spacecraft. I've been following Starliner's development for years. I visited the spacecraft so many times. And then like, when the mission got screwed up, all I could think about was the safety of the astronauts. When Chris and I met Sunita Williams and stuff, it takes away the like glossy eyes of the mission for me. Cause then I'm like, wait a minute, there are actual human lives at stake here. There are people in this spacecraft and we really need to focus on their health and safety. Oh yeah. And, and, and it's one of the reasons that like when crew one launched, like as much faith as I had in that system and as much as SpaceX had proven to us exactly how it would work if there were ever a problem right i don't think i breathed from t-minus two minutes to successful dragon separation and even then it was a i understand the risk is still there 
right? Yeah. And and yeah. and I admit when when Dragon emerged when it was returning, when it emerged from the blackout period where you can't communicate with the craft because the plasma that's being created by the speed at which the capsule is falling through the atmosphere literally prevents our communication signals from getting through to it. When it came out of that and and I heard Doug Hurley's voice, I started crying. Yeah. It was like at that moment that I was like, Oh my God, it worked. Like the parachutes weren't even out, but I was like, Oh my God. That was the end of the mission. Yeah. Well, you feel, (laughs) you feel the weight of all of those times. You feel them waiting for Apollo 13 to come back. You feel them not hearing Columbia Columbia. come back on the radio. You hear over and over, you hear John Glenn's first mission. There's all these times when that moment is so fraught with emotion and it ends either good or bad. Oh, well, I was just going to say, you know, it's interestingly something that the U.S. really didn't even have to deal with in the shuttle program because a lot of people, and rightfully so, believe that that moment that we lost communication with Columbia when the commander was in the middle of a sentence was because of the accident that was happening. In fact, it was just the shuttle's gigantic tail blocking the communication antenna with the communication satellite. Wow. Um, wow. We for for some shuttle reentries, we never actually lost voice contact with them. So mm-hmm. to know going into crew when you were going to lose contact, I think that's what really brought Columbia back to a lot of people on that mission. Even yeah. though we lose contact with the Soyuz crews every time they come home, and it's the same immense feeling of relief when you hear them start talking, or actually with Soyuz, it's when you start hear it beeping at the ground stations. But right. it's that same feeling of relief because you're right; there are people on board, and it's easy to forget that at times. Yeah, you made me recall another detail from Robin earlier. You'd asked about what it was like to see that shuttle launch and at 132, one of the last ones. And I was just remembering as I listened to you, Chris, how the whole time they were up there, I paid so much more attention to that mission than I paid to any other surrounding shuttle missions because I had the patch, I knew their names, I had watched mm-hmm. them go up, and I had that, you know, not, not quite the same. I did not have the good fortune to have met those astronauts like you guys have, but it just gave me this sense of connection that I want them to mm-hmm. be okay. And I recognize yeah. that they're on an adventure this entire time. I'm going to go back home and go to sleep, but they're up there for a long time. And then, and and then, when, they, and then when they landed, I really had to make sure they landed okay. Yeah. Right? And you know, too, it's it's that moment of like when they do something very personable, like Sunny Williams running around doing all this stuff, but she took that 30 seconds to not just take the selfie with Robin and I, but to actually ask us a question. Right. She didn't have to do that. And, you know, I I remember one of the final shuttle missions, it was the final flight of Discovery, and Nicole Stott was on board, an an amazing person. Mm -hmm. She's a friend of Superclusters. And um, a friend of Superclusters. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's uh, my favorite astronaut, uh, just because she was the first person to let me write a profile about her. Yeah, Chris, what was your story about Nicole? She's amazing. When, When the astro for the shuttle program, the van that took the astronauts out to the pad used to stop at the launch control center right by the press site so the final managers could get out, and then it was only the crew that went to the pad right Mm -hmm. and when they were getting out on that final mission nicole was sitting right by the door and she leaned forward to stick her head so she could see out the door and waved to all the media that were standing there yeah that's nicole and (laughs) and that's what sticks in my head of that crew is that little personal moment 
Yeah. And Chris, do you remember when Bob and Doug drove by and Doug gave us the yes. thumbs up? <laughs> that was awesome. Yes. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He just gave us, he whined on the window and he gave us a thumbs up. We were standing with James who works for SpaceX and he called us over and he's like, Hey, like, let's wave at Doug and Bob as they drive by. And they waved back and it was really, really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So speaking of launching humans, I wanted to talk a little bit about Blue Origin because they have been trying to launch a new test flight, their new Shepard launch system, the booster and the capsule. Blue Origin has had trouble trying to get this mission off the ground. Their first launch day um, was scrubbed because there was a power issue to the payload. And that issue persisted for the second time they scrubbed? Yeah, that's correct. So they, they had said that there was a power supply issue with the experiments on board the day of the original scrub. And then the next day when they came back to try it again, they said that they were working to verify a fix on a technical issue okay. and taking extra time to fly. So they didn't expressly state it was the same, but I guess, it could but, be. but yeah. that's how I read it. And I think yeah. that's how a lot of people read it. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. I guess you can be, they can be vague about it right yeah, now. If like, you want to. <laughs> um, that's fine. One of the payloads on this new Shepard NS-13 launch, which we hope will fly soon, is carrying an Artemis payload, a technology that we're using to test landing. Chris, could you explain that a little bit? Yes, yes. This is so cool, if you can't tell by the excitement in my voice. <laughs> so this is so there are 12 pay scientific payloads on board this mission. 11 of them are in the capsule, and one of them is actually on the booster. And it's the Artemis landing technology demonstrator for NASA that's on the booster. So basically, they're going to test all of the instrumentation that will give them, hey, this is how far off the lunar surface we are. This is how fast we're going in relation to the lunar surface. And all of that, they're actually going to test it on New Shepard when they know the exact altitudes they're aiming for, right? So that they can verify that everything's sort of working and seeing the landscape correctly, because unlike these rocket stages, like the new Shepard booster or the Falcon 9 first stages that can nail these landings on drone ships, because we know exactly the fact that these drone ships and landing pads are flat, you don't get that same thing on the moon. So we have to have really high confidence that things like moon rocks and boulders and things we can't see from our orbital reconnaissance satellites of the moon can be compensated for in real time and seen by the Artemis landing systems. So that's a really cool way that Blue Origin isn't just testing their tourism capsule and rocket, but actually helping advance science as they're doing it. So let, let me get this straight. Landing a skyscraper-sized rocket booster on a drone ship in the ocean is easier than landing one on the barren wasteland of the moon? And I don't mean just oh. for distances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Assuming that is correct. Yeah. No, yes, I mean, assuming... Actually, yeah. Because it sounds to me like, well, the moon has got big open spaces and I don't need to hit a pinpoint dot, but it's it's a more complicated surface. It's, it's far more complicated than we, we always knew. Because remember, we're discovering yeah. a lot of stuff about the moon now. We're learning more about regolith. We're learning about how porous it is. Um, what's moon dust? We're learning about moon dust and we're learning about the liquid water that might be under the surface that adds so much Add so many questions to the Artemis program to, to, for them to answer. I think that Artemis getting humans back to the moon is a big step in like finally, you know, doing stuff there. <laughs> yeah. And I guess yeah. if I think about it, a drone ship in the ocean is a perfectly controlled landing surface, as you point mm -hmm. out. Like, right. you know exactly what you're landing on, mm -hmm. whereas uh, the moon is the Wild West. And you I can control. Just, and yeah. the thing is, when you're landing on a drone ship, you almost have control of three different axes 
You know what I mean? It's like well, yeah, you have the drone it, ship itself can move, right? Yeah. And the uh, you can control the the rocket coming down in, in in some form. What I understand about the Falcon Nine coming home each time is you know controlled chaos. It's, yeah, you have a tall skyscraper-sized <laughs> cylinder free falling for quite a bit of time, and then you're using these grid fins to balance it out, control the aerodynamics, and control the physics of it. But there's know? the thing: no aerodynamics on the moon. That makes That's it harder as well. Exa- you right. can't uh, use those cool grid fins to steer right. yourself. Well, and and now think about it. Now you add the factor of now it's not even a flat surface. Now there might be right. obstacles that you can't see. And have to actively avoid and fly your vehicle away. So while they're testing on New Shepard to see like if all of this actually works, a better analogy is actually what is on the Mars Perseverance rover, which has for the first time a system on board where it has all of the images obtained by the Mars orbiters already stored inside its program and a camera that will take pictures of the site it's landing at and compare them with the orbital images and in real time make the decision, do I need to divert away oh. to another landing site oh, or is so, it yeah. safe to lay land here? And we're doing all of that with like a seven minute communication delay. So it's all mm-hmm. autonomous, right? And that's kind of how it has to be with the moon too. There's because of the time, the one second or so time delay between here and the moon, you can't take manual control of these crafts. They have to be able to navigate these things by themselves. I'm so, so pleased that the robots are working together, that they're like, okay, <laughs> yes. okay curiosity, yeah, I mean, curiosity, you go first. <laughs> yeah. You well, take some pictures. If the Battlestar you know? fans and us, that could go dark. That's yeah, going to yeah. go wrong at some point. And they're just um, like, you explore ahead and send back photos, and then I won't be so scared to land. I'll join you later. <laughs> I, I love that, yes. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, Blue Origin, they should be launching soon. Well, I guess we'll get an update on their progress. Shepard is their suborbital crewed spacecraft, which will eventually fly humans for the first time. But their next vehicle after New Shepard is New Glenn, which is a an orbital rocket, which will have to land on a drone ship and at Cape Canaveral, I believe, outside of Cape Canaveral. So we'll be looking out for Blue Origin updates and I'll get back to you. But right now, down in Boca Chica, Texas, Starship is in the, I don't even know, have a word to describe how fast this is going on there. They're testing daily, it seems, or trying to test daily. Chris, what's going on there? I know NSF has a live, has live coverage down there as with a couple Mm -hmm. others, but you guys are following this day to day. Obviously, Jamie and I want to know when the Starship with the flaps and the nose cone are going to fly because obviously we're all itching to get down there. Well, good news, because the answer is soon, as long as it, as its predecessors have, survives the cryoproofing and the cryogenic tests that they're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. But they rolled that version of the Starship without the nose cone. So it's two mm-hmm. separate sections, and they rolled mm-hmm. out just the propellant section pad over the week. This past weekend, I believe it was Saturday on September 26th. And they've kind of been in a holding pattern because of unfavorable weather to actually lift this giant thing off right. of its transporter and onto the launch stand. But... The basic flow of this or test campaign for this one is going to be a repeat of what we've seen before with a lot of testing where they're just kind of fueling the vehicle and it doesn't really look like anything. 
-hmm. And then a couple of static fires where they'll actually fire up three, not one, but three Raptor engines and really get this thing ready to fly. And once that's done, they'll bring the nose cone over and that has all the flaps and everything for these aero fins. And then sometime in October, if it all goes to plan, they will launch this thing up to a height of 50,000 feet or 15 kilometers, shut off all three Raptor engines, let it fall back to earth with just its aero surfaces controlling its orientation and descent, and then do that really, really awesome but terrifying looking flip down yeah, as, no. as the raptors reignite for the engine. I will not engine. believe it until I see it in person. <laughs> okay, I will so not just, believe that. No. Just, so that <laughs> just so that our listeners understand, paint, paint a picture in yeah. our heads. Yeah, so it's 1.2 kilometers, less than a mile off of the ground, that mm-hmm. this thing will basically be falling like a skydiver, flat mm-hmm. on stomach. And then with 1.2 kilometers left to go, will like a pendulum on, on a grandfather clock, but a lot faster, swing its tail section down, reignite the Raptor engines, swing past vertical, just like a pendulum will, and then come back to vertical basically right before it touches down on the ground. Oh, my. <laughs> and, oh my. That's, I won't just, believe it yeah. until I see it. Just for yeah. reference, that, that 1.2 kilometers would be about 4,000 feet. So you're talking yeah. like low yeah. cloud layer is where uh-huh. this is happening. You You'll would just see it, see it yeah. right there. You'll see it. Yeah. You'll see it. Yeah. It'll yeah, be shocking. I, I, yeah, I remember standing next to you, Robin, when that presentation video was first made a year ago at Boca Chica. Chris, I want to point out that ten, as we're taping this, tonight is the one-year <gasps> anniversary no of when Chris and I visited <laughs> the first Starship with a nose cone oh, fun. and the flaps. It was tonight that we talked to Elon about oh, the plans, wow. and they unleashed, they un- unveiled that new video with that flip, which Chris yeah. is talking about right now. But yeah, and Elon is planning another presentation. They haven't locked down the date yet, and I'm pretty sure they're waiting for this flight to happen. Then Elon mm-hmm. will do another yearly Mars talk. So yeah, that's we were doing. We Chris and I were in Boca Chica last year on this day. Elon did a talk about you know updating on Starship's progress and you know reaffirming the faith, as I call it, that they are going to Mars at some point, but also talking about the moon a little bit. And I wanted to bring that into this conversation a year later, because since last year, since the unveiling of Starship prototype to the media officially, SpaceX has is part of this human landing system program mm-hmm. put out by NASA to potentially be the vehicle that brings cargo and then maybe humans back to the lunar surface. So that is a big step, I think. And I think the fact that the tuna can has flown a couple times already, <laughs> spectacularly, yeah. uh, is, is showing a lot of yeah. progress. And I think the endorsement, <laughs> we've seen an endorsement from NASA. We've seen sort of an endorsement from different military parties. Lately, they've been having some yeah. trouble with the language of Starship and the Air Force, but that's a whole other thing. But I think that there has been a general endorsement of the development of Starship because NASA did you know, make it part of this human landing system contract, oh. exploration contract. And they that photo that I saw, was it a concept art, Chris, where they had the Starship and then the Artemis logo on it? Did I see that? Oh, I don't know about the logo itself, but are you, you're talking about the black and white version of Starship, right? Yes. The moonship? Yes, the black, yes. yes. 
So, so we do think that is more or less the current idea behind the color scheme, just mm-hmm. because this is a vehicle that isn't going to be doing the up-down flights like the right. stainless, like the purely stainless steel ones are. Yeah. This is going to have to stay in space for a long time, yeah. so that requires it looks like it's different thermal conditioning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but it's important to know too, like when NASA gave them part of the contract, right, for human lunar landing systems. Mm-hmm. It, Jim Bridenstine, the administrator of NASA, said, and it was kind of shocking to hear the NASA administrator say this, he said, if this works, this being Starship, if Starship works, this is a system that will be a game changer, and mm-hmm. NASA cannot ignore it. So you can see how NASA is is swinging toward this direction of more faith in SpaceX. And I would honestly say that really, really comes down to how they performed in the commercial crew program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously we they've had a demo flight. And this next SpaceX Dragon launch with crew is the first official mission. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see how that goes and you know if they learn anything and or if the process is going to change. But yes, SpaceX launching humans is a big step toward everything that they have coming in front of them. And I feel like the next step, SpaceX has always talked about landing humans on Mars, and that is definitely their long-term vision. But I think that there's an opportunity for SpaceX at the moon. NASA has already put this opportunity in front of them. And I think it's good money. Obviously, NASA will pay SpaceX to take cargo and humans to the moon. It'll be good money. And it'll help SpaceX develop this system to go to Mars. The moon is an obvious place to train and practice and test your technology. And I think SpaceX is going to take advantage of it. They're going to make some money along the way. We're going to have a moon variant starship. We're going to have a Mars variant starship. We're going to have an ISS starship, maybe. Who knows? And and point to point. And point to point. That's the, <laughs> yeah. that's another that yeah. that's, that whole, that warrants a whole other conversation. But SpaceX really is serious about replacing airplane travel with Starship. They are. Yeah, I mm-hmm. I I've heard that point to point story, and weirdly, mm-hmm. I'm like more confident in them landing on Mars than launching that company right. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just yeah. seems so, like. <laughs> You know, I'm with you on that, Jamie. Not from a technical perspective, but from a public and like price standpoint. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. From a technical and, perspective, it's lovely. But from yeah, price yeah. and a like and, utility perspective, I don't know. Well, Why do like, you want to go to Shanghai in 45 minutes? Right. Well, well, and I mean, for as much as we very rightfully point out when China very dangerously drops rocket stages onto populated villages. The thing with point-to-point transportation with Starship is we're going to have to get people used to rockets flying over us. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the, that's, that's, the bigger, yeah. that's the bigger like federal regulatory change that I think is going to be harder than you're right. Sending people to another planet. <laughs> <laughs> and which, which, by the way, I, I really think that the moon first approach is great. I mean, what, you know, like what Mercury and Gemini were to Apollo, the moon now is to Mars. Like it's, it's a, a right. step that will teach you yeah. so much that right. uh, you're better off. Plus, I mean, we're gonna... it, it, it is so analogous, like, if you look at the Mercury and Gemini to Apollo, right? Mercury to our current generation is the International Space Station. Gemini is the Artemis program and Apollo yeah. is the moon. I mean, it's just it just clicks and fits so well with that analogy. The moon is the new gold rush here. Everyone wants to get back to the moon. And I think that Chris, recently Jim Bridenstein announced a, a program in which NASA can purchase lunar regolith from a private company that makes it to the moon and is able to mine that. 
which will that's that's the definition of starting a gold rush. We're hey, we're gonna yes. give you money for that stuff. <laughs> you know, that's the first step in a rush of any kind. And, so, and, it's, and, and yeah. it's so funny because my first thought when I read that was like, wait a minute, isn't this against some of the UN treaties right. and everything? But but when you really go read them, no, it's not. No. Right? Private companies, if they invest their own money to go get it, mm-hmm. it's not then illegal to turn around and sell what you got to somebody else, oh, yeah. which is what NASA is proposing. So yeah. there is an interesting little way that some of these UN resolutions from the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and UNUSA, it's, it's interesting to see how, how we're working within those boundaries that are set forth by the UN. Yeah. Right. Well, it's kind of like, I mean, it weirdly makes me think of fishing. Like, I can't go out into the mil- middle of the ocean and declare, this is my ocean and all you who <laughs> sail here will have to do what I say. But I can catch the fish and sell them and go back yes, you home, can. you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, the is becoming this huge platform where everyone is proposing ideas to the Artemis program. And this week, Supercluster worked with SETI Berkeley. Um, they are submitting a paper to the National Academy of Sciences and to the Artemis program to propose that we build a SETI a listening station on the far side of the moon. And that would be a, a radio observatory to detect signals from an intelligent alien civilization. Now you've got my attention and going back to it. Yeah. <laughs> And on that note, I'm going to go ahead and mute both Jamie and Chris as we move on to our next segment. They'll be back with us in a few minutes, though. We have Andrew Simeon, the director of the Berkeley SETI Institute, on the show today to talk us through this paper and the proposal to build a radio observatory on the far side of the moon. Following Andrew's interview, we'll be calling in Alex Lynn, supercluster reporter, who has astronaut Victor Glover on the line. He'll be flying with SpaceX on their next Crew Dragon mission, currently scheduled for Halloween. But first, we want to get into this really cool paper submitted by SETI Berkeley. It's a really interesting proposal, and it really follows everything that we've been covering here at Supercluster between SpaceX and NASA's mission to get back to the moon and SETI's progress in listening for intelligence signals throughout the universe. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, thank you so much for working with us on getting this story out. Sure. Happy to be here. It's always a pleasure to work with all the great folks at Supercluster. So, Andrew, let's get into this paper. You guys submitted it to the National Academy of Sciences, and there is a, correct me if I'm wrong here, there's a sister paper that was also submitted to the Artemis program? Yeah, that's that's correct. So this was uh, initially submitted to the, what's called the Planetary Sciences Decadal Survey. This is an every 10-year project that the National Academies engages in to kind of set the set the strategy for the next decade of planetary sciences research. And then a, a slimmed down version of it was submitted as a mission concept for the Artemis mission. Incredible. Now, there's been so much talk recently about what kinds of activities we can engage in on the moon now that there's this rush to get back there. It's not just NASA. It's the, an international community. It's the private sector, Blue Origin, the national team, and SpaceX, and others. So, Andrew, did this – I mean, obviously, building a, an observatory on the far side of the moon – has been something that's been discussed before within SETI communities. And we talked a lot about Frank Drake in the article as well. Did you guys see an opportunity here? Is this something that's been stirring in you and the team for a while? Yeah, absolutely. The lunar surface and the lunar environment in general is really just an extraordinary place to do astronomy, full stop. And you know, there are, there are lots of reasons why, of course, just about any kind of astronomy you can do is better from space. 
and the lunar surface itself presents some some very particular opportunities. The lunar far side, from the perspective of the radio search for extraterrestrial intelligence, has long been identified as really an ideal preserve, a place to get away from the ubiquitous, what we call radio frequency interference, all of the noise from from human technology that plagues our, our searches. And the history of this actually goes all the way back to something called the Cyclops Report, this was a design study that NASA engaged in in the 70s, a, a bit in the 80s, some successor design studies. And even back then, of course, this is in the, in the wake of the Apollo program, it was recognized that the moon would be an ideal place to do, to do SETI. But of course, with kind of diminishing interest in the moon in the 80s and, and the 90s, that idea kind of lost a bit of steam. And with the renewed interest that we've seen, as you mentioned, in the last handful of years, it's really kind of raised the possibility again. And I think now, you know, versus where we were in, in the 70s and the 80s, I think because of the miniaturization of electronics, the advent of robotics, artificial intelligence, reduced cost to get to space, firms like SpaceX and, and Blue Origin, it really is now a credible possibility to build a radio observatory on the lunar far side. Now, let's talk about these approaches that were discussed. One includes an orbiter, correct? And That's right. Now, ex- explain how that orbiter can assist in this. Well, it's, it's certainly less expensive mm-hmm. to build lunar orbiters versus going down to the lunar surface in most instances. And there's a variety of, of technologies that already exist that could be repurposed for an orbiter mission. One of the things we talk about in the paper is there's a firm called Hawkeye 360 that has mm-hmm. built a network of small satellites that's used to do geolocation of radio transmitters. So it looks back at the Earth and locates radio transmitters on the surface of the Earth. And that same small constellation of of small satellites could be repurposed as lunar orbiters to, instead of locate radio transmitters on Earth, to locate Mm -hmm. radio transmitters on the celestial sphere. And so we think that that would be a great starting point. And obviously, when those orbiters go on to the, the lunar far side, they're largely shielded from this radio frequency interference. But ultimately, if we want to build really big apertures, lots of collecting area to detect very, very weak signals, we think that the surface of the moon, the lunar surface, would be a better place to do that. But I note that this is this is actually very much a subject of active discussion within our group and with many other groups that are that are interested in doing radio astronomy in the lunar environment. That is, what circumstances make sense for orbiters versus what circumstances or, or scientific goals really make sense for something on the surface. Right. And just looking at the past few years of successes, orbiters have had a lot of success in doing the science at their sender to do, not to mention the proliferation of small sats and the, the, the cost reduction in pr- producing those kinds of satellites and spacecraft that could orbit the moon. What we've also seen is landing on the moon is very difficult. I think recently the Israeli Beresheet mission crashed on the surface. So it, it, yes, we're a few decades away from Apollo, but Getting to the lunar surface is very difficult, but the fact that so many people are heading there and they're, you know, they're increasing their technological prowess and they're proving out their systems, I think it does look realistic within the decade that building an observatory like this would be possible alongside a human base. Now, is there a permanent human presence required to operate a radio observatory? Absolutely not. Of course, a radio observatory, as, as any astronomical observatory, would certainly benefit from a permanent human presence, but would otherwise benefit from infrastructure 
that would be available for any permanent presence of any sort, even one that was of the sort of robotic variety. And I think this is another motivator for thinking about the surface is that our expectation is certainly that in the next decade or perhaps two, there will be some significant infrastructure available on the lunar surface to provide power, to provide communication, those kinds of things. And that you know, obviously makes the mission much more economical in that those things don't need to be provided by the mission itself. We can piggyback if you will, on um, on existing infrastructure. That makes a lot of sense. But personally, I can't think of a better reason for a human to be there <laughs> other than <laughs> to uh, monitor this really awesome outpost. Um, so Andrew, we're going to wrap this and I want our, our listeners to definitely check out Daniel Oberhaus's article on this on supercluster.com. He is one of the finest SETI reporters out there. So please check out the article. Andrew, tell us about SETI in general, where you guys are right now. Obviously, our readers, we, we do a lot of SETI reporting, and that's the topic they love the most. Where are we? This is such a broad and <laughs> loaded question. Like, where are we in the search for intelligence? But are things looking up? Are we are we making progress? Are I mean, obviously, proposals like this are the future. What's your big goal right now? Yeah, le- leaps and bounds. You know, I, I, obviously, this is our, our favorite topic as well. You know, in the, in the near term, what I can say is that we're about halfway through the Breakthrough Listen program, the most comprehensive, sensitive, and intensive search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In history, we have deployed the most powerful instruments that have ever been used for SETI at a number of telescopes all around the world, the Meerkat Array in South Africa, the Green Bank Telescope in the United States, Parks Observatory in Australia, a number of others. I think in in the next sort of five to 10 years, I think we're going to enter an era in SETI where the search for intelligent life is a significant part of the science case for all major astronomical observatories on the ground and in space. And that's something that has never happened before in the history of the field. For the last 60 years, SETI has always been relegated to maybe one or two telescopes, usually radio telescopes with science programs with just a couple of of scientists. And I think in five to 10 years, largely, I think as a result of the LISTEN program, we're going to see SETI at every observatory. And that means lots of different eyes, lots of different ears, lots of different people all over the globe engaging in the science. And I think it gives us the best chance in history of of making what could be the most profound discovery in the history of, uh, of discovery. Well, you've got me excited, Andrew. And I think that our listeners love catching up on SETI. And we love doing stories like this every once in a while to get everyone up to speed on where where you guys are at and, and where the Breakthrough Listen Project is at. So thank you for that update. And Andrew, we will check back with you and your team very soon. We'll you know get some updates on the paper and, and other stuff that you guys are working on. We love SETI and our audience loves SETI. So thank you so much for connecting with us on this, Andrew. And uh, we will have you on again soon. Great. Thank you. Always happy to chat. And now we're going to quickly jump over to Alex Lynn, who has Victor Glover on the line. Hi, Victor. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer our questions today. My first question is concerning the Crew Dragon flight vehicle. So the Crew Dragon is set to be the fifth American vehicle to be certified by NASA for human spaceflight. And Crew-1 is also the first time a capsule will carry four crew members at a time. How do you anticipate the Crew Dragon will compare to previous flight vehicles or jets that you have piloted? And could you speak to the specific training you have undergone in preparation for piloting this vehicle? Oh, absolutely. Well, it is going to uh, be very unique in that regard. I mean, the Falcon booster 
and almost two million pounds of thrust, it, it's just, it won't compare to anything I've ever done. But that's by design. This is just such a unique endeavor to go to go to space and to go into low Earth orbit. But, you know, the vehicle is really a sophisticated design. For what it's supposed to do, it does it extremely well. I'll be honest, coming in as a pilot, I wanted to stick in a throttle, even a little trackball, something that I could grab onto to fly the vehicle. But after training in it for these two years, I've really gained an appreciation for the display and controls being integrated and how simple it is. And then we have backup buttons for things that we need to be able to do crucially if the displays were to die. It, it, is, it is a really well-designed system. And over the last two and a half years, the training has been great. Learning, you know, it was interesting listening to Shannon and Soichi compare and contrast the training. And as always, I learned a ton from them. And the basics of learning about a spacecraft, especially a capsule, are the same. There's the theory, then there's the basic operations, and then you learn emergency procedures. And, and that's true in a Soyuz. And it's true today in Crew Dragon. And I'm sure it was true in Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. So my next question is, this is clearly a mission of great historical significance and has the potential to open up an entirely new world of possibilities for space travel and exploration. It's a critical milestone, not only for NASA and SpaceX, but also for you personally, as it marks your first mission to the ISS. What was your emotional response when you first learned you had not only been selected for your first mission to the space station, but that it was also Crew-1? And how did your family react? You know, it was really interesting. It was kind of like when I found out I was selected to start astronaut candidate training. I was working in Congress when I got selected for this job, and it just seemed unreal. I knew I was dreaming because my surroundings didn't seem right. Getting a phone call just didn't seem right. Well, when I got the phone call that I was selected for this mission and I was going to fly with Mike, and I only knew it was Mike at the time, I was on vacation. I was on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean, which was is very unlikely. And so it, again, seemed just to be unreal. And so I was alone just with my wife and we talked about it and had a lot of time together, just the two of us. You know, it's not a, over an, a, an exaggeration to say I was over the moon and my family was excited and, and my kids really loved the fact that it's with SpaceX. And so that has just really been extremely special. And it is, it's an important time for NASA and, and for our country and our partners and the world in general, I believe. And, but yes, it is also my first space flight, so it's still extremely special to me. And I just, I am so honored and really kind of awestruck. You know, I, there's a lot of emotion packed into this moment, and I'm just trying to process it all. And at the same time, come launch day at, you know, 2.40 or so in the morning on October 31st, I want to be focused and ready to do my job for, for Mike and, and Shannon and Soichi. So lots of emotions wrapped up in there, but it's all good. And we're back. We thank Alex Lynn for her great report. And we're very excited about Victor's flight coming up on Halloween. John Krause will be down at Kennedy Space Center to cover the mission for us. We're going to go ahead and call back Chris and Jamie into the show so we can get this wrapped. Chris, during that little break, did you get a message from ULA? Because I did. (laughs) I, I did, Robin. <laughs> yeah, this is why we don't focus on dates in our what's upcoming segment. Yeah, we can. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because literally while we were recording this, the Delta Four Heavy launching that Orion Signals Intelligence satellite for the National Reconnaissance Office had to postpone by 24 hours 
because thunderstorms at the launch pad actually prevented them from rolling back a service structure in time to proceed with the countdown in the window. So sometimes in Florida, it's not just the launch weather, it's the weather five hours before launch that can also get you sometimes. So condolences to US ULA, weather scrubs are always hard, especially when hardware is ready. Good luck to ULA. We hope they can get that mission off the ground soon. Obviously, uh, it's impossible to track a launch using a podcast. So we definitely suggest that you download the Supercluster app or visit our website at supercluster.com slash launches, and you'll be able to keep on top of these ever-changing mission schedules. Obviously, on the podcast, we tape and cut a day later, but our tracker is up to date to the minute and is updated very frequently. So download the app, and you can also watch a live stream when the launch is actually eventually happening. All right, guys. So what I wanted to close this uh, this podcast, there's been a lot of space entertainment out there. And I know that all three of us, as Jamie and myself, love watching space movies, television show, and all that good stuff. We're all Star Trek, Star Wars fans, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if you've been following Star Trek television show happenings. I know you've been watching the animated show. I watched the first couple of episodes. I enjoy it. I've been reading Swapna's recaps. I'm going to eventually watch the rest of the season of the animated. It's called Lower Decks. Chris, quick thoughts on it. Good, bad, ugly. You really do. It's amazing. Yeah, um, I, I think it's hilarious. I love it. I'm going to continue watching it soon. Yeah, it is to me actually the most Star Trek, Star Trek series there is. <laughs> and it's satire of Star Trek, but it's brilliant. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. It, it's yeah. smart. I love the inside jokes. I love the the broader canon jokes that everyone knows. But it, it's service to new fans and old fans, which I love. Yeah, I will say, though, I've, I haven't watched a ton of it, but from what I have seen, I think the more you love Star Trek, the more you're going to love that because you're just yeah. going to relate to it on you're so many great You're also making fun levels. of yourself, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like you're making fun of yourself. So on the movie front, now this is something I'm always tracking. Tarantino's film idea floated to the surface again at the studio and then got put on the back burner because I'm pretty sure that had to do with the pandemic. Noah Hawley, who is a television writer and creator, I think his last name was Fargo. He was given the opportunity to produce the next Star Trek movie as well. And he has since dropped out from what I'm hearing. Just to fill in there, if people hadn't Mm -hmm. heard of it, Tarantino was pitching the idea of making a Tarantino Star Trek film, which I think could be absolutely fascinating. It could be fascinating. Yeah. Super violent. (laughs) Super violent. (laughs) But let me tell you, I'm rewatching Enterprise right now. And I'm sorry, guys, it gets pretty violent already. It's there's some Tarantino-esque violence already in Star Trek, in my opinion. I'm sorry. At minimum, there's Black Mirror level violence all over Star Trek. You know, yeah. And I've been very happy with how Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks have sort of carved out different areas, right, in the streaming arena. Because, you know, one thing that fans were very concerned with about Discovery was that because it was going to be on streaming, there were no network sensors, so you could do anything. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, are we going to swear? Are we going to show sex? Are we going to do this? What are we going to do? And, you know, Discovery has, has sort of found what's acceptable and what isn't for Star Trek in that. But it's been very interesting to see how, you know, one has pushed boundaries. One has just tried to tell a very non-conventional story in Star Trek Picard. And one is just having fun. And I love that the streaming era is allowing Star Trek to expand into these other arenas, which actually, to me, made the Quentin Tarantino movie option really fascinating, like you said, Jamie. 
Yeah. Uh, new, yeah. New, I think Star Trek is always recruiting a new audience. Always. So it, it is. You and, and you know, if Star Trek has always pushed the boundaries, right? Like, I mean, the original series was like nothing that had been on before, right. you know, next generation proved that syndication was good and viable. And then DS nine was honestly like all the serialized shows you have today, you watch today, you have deep space nine to thank for that, for proving that breaking it barriers. Oh, a yeah. lot of shows. owed there. I mean, no, no DS nine, no, Battlestar Galactica. No, absolutely not. So Ron no, Moore was a writer on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to forget sometimes that Generation or Next Generation was still one of those shows that basically reset everything every episode, like a very mm. classic, episodic, old school TV that. show. I miss that. I miss that. Yeah, I, and, and I miss that. Worlds, the, the the Enterprise series with Anson Mott about Pike number one and and Spock is going to mm-hmm. be episodic again. Oh, which that's is lovely. Funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Have any of you guys seen the new Netflix show called Away? I've been hearing a lot about it on our and on Space Twitter, and I've checked out maybe 15 minutes. Now, here's why I stopped. Because I watch Hulu's Mars show, which is in the beginning of the show. It's It stars Sean Penn. It's about the first human mission to Mars. Spoiler alert, the mission blows up upon launch in the beginning of the series and the whole series is dark and depressing and they don't leave for Mars for a long ass time. So when I started away <laughs> and I saw the tone and I saw what the story, and I started reading about like, Oh, this is like they're in psychological distress and thing, you know, I, I just got turned off by the concept and I yeah. didn't continue on. For me, it was, it was partially that in the sense that I thought they were not, necessarily exploring the most interesting things here. I was open to the idea of a very character-driven story where we're feeling the emotion. Like, in many ways, First Man was a beautiful depiction Mm -hmm. of the emotions of spaceflight, and I love that. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. really personal. I really was impressed by the way that they not only depicted spaceflight in one of the most visceral ways I'd ever experienced in a theater, but also made me really think about, like, man, this is crazy that we even did this to human beings. (laughs) You know, like, it's really wonderful. But with a way... I immediately felt that, and I don't know if it's the direction in particular, the writing, that it was sort of overwrought, that it was not hitting these emotional notes Mm. very well. And I wasn't quite ready to watch the extreme emotions of outer space depicted somewhat poorly. While I do like a lot of performers who are in that show, I kind of walked away. I think it was good another chance, but it just didn't feel right, you know? Yeah, I haven't watched it, but I did read the script of the pilot. Mm -hmm. And even in script form, it didn't grab me. So I haven't actually physically clicked watch, but I have read the pilot and it, yeah, I agree. Like it, I understand what they're trying to do, but Mm -hmm. for me personally, it wasn't what I was looking for in a Mars story. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's, I think that's my perspective as well. That's, that's not the story that I I wanted to watch uh, about that mission. I immediately turned it off and I, and my brother actually, who keeps on top of a lot of film and television, he messaged me and he said, Hey man, check out Ridley Scott's new show. And I'm like, I didn't even know Ridley Scott had a new show. If you're not familiar with Ridley Scott, he directed the first alien. He directed Prometheus, uh, which is like sort of a prequel to that. He directed The Martian, a million other great movies. Yeah. There's <laughs> yeah. a million great movies. Yeah. He has a series, Robin? Uh, yeah. I've been trying to tweet about the show to our community. Some people have been messaging me like, oh, I checked it out. I loved it. But the reason I'm talking about it on this podcast is because I want space people to watch this show and I want to talk to them about it. So here's the premise. And first off, I think the show. 
the first two episodes are directed by Ridley Scott. I think he's the executive producer, but he sets up the first two episodes and it's great direction. The show, I call it a hybrid of Alien, Prometheus, and The Martian. <laughs> I really, oh. It really is a hybrid of those three things. <laughs> so the premise of the show is Kepler-22b, which is a real exoplanet that we've mm-hmm. discovered. It's relatively close compared to other exoplanets. Humans send a spacecraft there with two cyborgs and embryos to birth humans on this new planet and create a starter colony, which blew my mind because I I heard this concept before when I interviewed Kip Thorne, who has the Nobel Prize for gravitational waves, and he was an executive producer on Interstellar, wrote all the science, created the black hole. When I interviewed him, my last question to him, because he's a brilliant cosmologist, was like, how do you think humans are going to get to interstellar space? And he looked me dead in the eye and he's like, robots. And I didn't know what he meant by that, you know? And I was like, (laughs) I don't know what you mean by this. I'm going to leave now. And I left and I watched the show and these two cyborgs that look human-like but are definitely robots birthed humans on Kepler 22B using modern technology, using like their modern technology. takes place like 120 years in the future. So you see them living on this exoplanet. It's very interesting. They put a lot of work into the the design of the world, the atmosphere, the harsh, harsh conditions, the lack of food, the lack of water. Um, They find, I don't want to spoil the show, but there's one really awesome thing in the first episode where they discover a giant skeleton of like an old dinosaur or something. Oh my God. That's amazing to me. I love that stuff. So I stuck with the show. The show asks a lot of deep, crazy questions about us going and settling a new world. It also talks a lot about why we left this world. And I'm not going to get into that, but I think all these elements really make it a great space show because it's a lot about the dark stuff that we face out there. A lot about, a lot about the harsh conditions and a lot about religion and just society. And I think that the space community ignores a lot of those things, but it's something that we face in the future when we do step foot on other worlds. And I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of emotion surrounding space flight, but we often ignore an entire side of that emotion in the, right. in the efforts to be optimistic and positive. So right. it can be really fun to explore that stuff in fiction. Chris, the show is called Raised by Wolves, and it's on HBO Max. So if you guys want to check that out, you know, hit us up. But I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Would you check that out? I Well, I'm going to now, actually, because what you said this show is, is what I've been waiting for a Mars show to do. Because yeah. to me, it's not necessarily about the family you leave behind mm-hmm. on Earth. It's about how do you create a justice system on another planet? How do you create mm-hmm. a society yeah. when medical resources are limited and people get injured? How do you make that terrifying terrifyingly awful decision of is that life worth saving and expending the resource to save that's what fascinates me about our, our mars colonization efforts and what i want to see so yeah i'll be checking that out robin oh totally and chris let us know uh, what you think at the next episode definitely yeah and it's, I think you're right, Chris, that it's about the new situation, not the old situation. I mean, certainly you can have yeah. space stories that take place both in space and with their earthly counterparts. But I think that often what's most interesting is the dynamic and unusual situations that space puts you in uniquely. Yeah. And, and I mean, kind of talking about that, I mean, 
have you guys seen the Challenger documentary yet on Netflix? It's it's powerful. Benched it. Yeah. And uh, it's powerful. <sighs> it, you will cry the whole time. It was amazing. Again, I love what people do with these documentaries is incredible. Um, and I want to recall to Apollo 11. They're, they're really potent storytelling. It reminds you that we are doing the best story here. Space is space is a story, no matter the pitfalls and the, and the heights and, and all the, the love and the passion and the excitement, no matter how we're telling the story, no matter if it's a story of despair or excitement, the, the story really sticks with you. It, it's, it so does. I mean, I have to admit, it took me 11 days to get through the Just four get through it, yeah. episodes yeah. because yeah. I, 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 I man, was hard. That, was, yeah. that was hard. Yeah. But one thing that I really grabbed onto was what they chose to name the first episode. Did you catch this, Rob? No. What was it? It's called Space for Everyone. Oh, really? Oh, I did not know. I just went right into it. I didn't even... The ultimate message to me of, of the documentary, which, which is brilliant, I very highly recommend it, but it's very emotional and hard to get through in places. But the overall message I emerged from it with is, look, we made this attempt in the 80s to make space for everyone. And because it failed in such a public and tragic way, we stopped. Let's not stop. We can't stop. We can't right. stop. And we can yeah. we can hold accountable. We can be responsible. We can improve our technology and improve our processes. But we can never, ever, ever, ever stop because we can't go through a lull again. We can't we can't be in a waiting pattern, waiting for spaceflight to emerge again. We can never do that. Yeah, to me, to me, the lesson of, and I, and I haven't watched that documentary yet, but I've uh, perhaps saddened by how much I know about what wrong, wrong with Challenger already, <laughs> particularly <laughs> through my personal interest in, in Richard Feynman, who was involved in the uh, study later and famously right. dropped the O-ring in the ice water. But to me, the lesson was always about process, not not the goal. Like it was about right. how we're doing it, not should we do it. It just felt so much like this was just a failure of not being careful. It's it has it was not to me an indictment at all of flying to space. It was just an indictment of hubris and uh, and yeah. a lack of care that comes with, with becoming complacent about complicated things. And that is exactly what has led to the five fatal spaceflight accidents. It is not that the vehicles did something unexpected in the moment. It's that in every single case, the two from, uh, well, one from Russia, the three from America, we literally flew those vehicles outside of their operational constraints and we lost them and we lost 17 people and Russia has lost four because we didn't listen to the technology we had built. There's a lesson there, right? Of just, if you stop and take a moment, these things work safely. (laughs) Take your time, be patient. You know? And you can't you can't argue with the facts or the science. You no. can't negotiate with them. You can't tell them that it's a bad news day for you. This should apply to everything. And we should end the podcast on this note. Listen to the experts <laughs> on everything. Yes. On, on, on whether it's spaceflight or whether it's coronavirus. Listen yeah. to the experts. Listen. And you know, spaceflight is science. And when you do science the right way, like it's supposed to be done, it goes, things go the right way. They do. Don't ignore the science. The science at its most fundamental, you could be described as a process for predicting what's going to happen. And so trust your best predictions about what's going to happen. Trust science. Yeah. And if for some reason you don't want to trust science, science is the big robot standing in the corner yelling, danger, Real Robinson, danger. (laughs) Danger, Uh, danger, danger. (laughs) That's TARS being like sassy. 
Don't have don't have stars be sassy to you. On <laughs> I love uh, the idea of that that humor setting. That's yeah, that's no, a good we, idea. The first starship that goes to Mars better have like a decent humor setting. Knowing Elon, there'll be fart jokes. As with oh, Tesla. Yes. <laughs> Thank you to our audience for bearing with us through this first test of our new, like Jamie said, our more variety themed show. We hope you enjoyed listening to our banter on the most recent news. And we always have more news. Um, we didn't get through it all. We will have updates on other missions next week. We will have an update on Starlink 13. We will have an update. Um, we're looking into on the West Coast emergency workers and uh, folks doing rescue efforts in the areas affected by the wildfire are actually using Starlink to communicate right now. And apparently SpaceX is sending out Starlink receivers. So folks who don't have access to internet during emergencies are having access. So we'll look into that story. We'll have an update for you next week on that. Check out our shop. There are some new items in there, some very cool Apollo stuff. I won't spoil it, but our team handcrafted some of these really incredible survival gear that the Apollo astronauts used before their missions. Please check that out. Also, go check out that SETI article on um, the case for building a listening post on the moon. Jamie, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. I look forward to being back with you guys next week. And Chris will hopefully have seen the pilot for Raised by Wolves, uh, release oh, Scott's yeah. new show. And we can talk <laughs> yes. about it. Totally. Yeah, I think that's all for this week. Don't forget to download our app to stay on top of all the latest space launches. And remember, as always, space is for everyone. <laughs> <laughs>